Howdy, y'all. Chris here. When Mark and I were recording this episode, we encountered numerous technical difficulties. We tried to fix it in the editing as best we could, but a few of those glitches still remained in the finished episode. And with that, here's episode 15 of the Double K Super Show, Fire of Precious Warning. Welcome to the Double K Super Show. I'm Chris Karam, a.k.a. I can't believe it's been 40 years already. This is Mark Fire and Ice Kozarovsky. This episode, we're going to look at five albums that are celebrating their 40th anniversary this year. Yes, I'm talking about the year 1981. It's time to shock the people again. <laughs> well, yeah, especially shocking if, you were, if you've if you been around this long like we have. Mm-hmm. Statler and Waldorf here. Yes, and... Uh, Statler and Waldorf, for those of you who may not know, were these two characters on The Muppet Show who were always sitting up in the balcony making wisecracks about the goings-on on The Muppet Show, which also was airing in, at this time in 1981. That's very true. We're going to start looking at these five records. And these, of course, 1981 for me was a year where I was uh, started off as a freshman in high school and ended the year as a sophomore. So... Like a lot of years, uh, high school years are pivotal years when it comes to music listening. They're very, they're kind of among your formative years. Hmm. It's the gap between coming in as a fanboy and leaving as a, as a sophisticated musical aesthetic appreciator. Oh right, yeah, definitely. Because when I was seventeen, I was definitely sophisticated. Oh yeah. <laughs> but I digress. Anyway. The first album we're going to look at is uh, the album Moving Pictures by the band Rush. This record was released on February 12, 1981, and was produced by Rush and Terry Brown. Now, the previous year, in 1980, the previous year, in 1980, Rush had released their Permanent Waves album, and as we discussed in a previous episode, that album set the tone for the decade because Rush were going for more compact song forms. No, you know, no more of the sidelong epics, you know, bounce with maybe two or three other tracks. That album had seven tracks and as does this one, this album takes, you know, that, I don't want to say formula, but that template in my estimation perfects it. This was Rush where they really arrived seven years into their recording career and they released the album that, most fans know, or the general public knows, I believe it's their biggest selling album in the U.S. It's the album that pretty much defines them as they're going to be in the 80s. It has that very, very slick La Studio production. It's extremely Canadian. It's very smooth. It's, it's very direct. It's, it's Rush arriving as a mainstream proposition more or less in their own terms. Right, because Rush was never going to be a band that uh, kowtowed to the top 40 or, you know, if, if Rush incorporated new musical aspects into their sound, it was because they wanted to and it was something they believed in. Yeah, and there's plenty of it on this album. Uh, the keyboards are getting more of a, a part of the mix. A little bit of that classic 70s jazz fusion, that's what YYZ is all about. There's still a few progressive song song structures, particularly on side two. There's also a lot of like what you would call almost like, you know, classic rock, you know, April Wine type of riffs, you know, Red Barchetta. So it's, it's a mix of things. And there's a little bit of that new wave sort of police element coming in also, although that would be much stronger in the next album. Very true. And of course, this album, you know, gives them two of their classic rock mainstay songs. And of course, I'm referring to the songs Limelight and the rather ubiquitous Tom Sawyer. And Tom Sawyer is a song that, you know, remains a classic rock staple. And interestingly enough, Neil Peart, the drummer, had sent an interview years back, probably about 10 years ago, that even up to that point, if he could play Tom Sawyer live and, and get it right, it was an achievement for him because the drumming on that on that song is so complex and there's, and there's so many shifts in tone and time. And to think about it, this was a song that Rush had to play at every show probably for the next 
you know, 30 odd years. And for Neil Peart 30 years in to still be, you know, not jaded by it and still considering it an accomplishment to play it live. That I think that says something about Neil Peart and his, uh, his attitude and his musicianship. Yeah, it definitely shows their ability to put together a, a very catchy, deceptively straightforward song. It's anything but, you know, the rhythm shifts are like every two seconds. It's impossible to tell what time the song is in because it's in 20 different times at 20 different places. The lyrics are individuals. You know, what is the song actually about? But it has that feeling of, like, confidence. It, it, it's definitely the kind of song that a band writes when they know they're about to arrive. It has that feeling to it. Oh, definitely. And, you know, like I said, there are times, you know, in over the years where I've gotten maybe a little tired of it in terms of the classic rock context. But when you sit down and listen to it and go back to where you were, you realize this is a great song and this is a great album. I mean, you know, Red Barchetta. I mean, YYZ. Which, by the way, if you don't know what YYZ for, I believe that's the three-letter code for the one of the, I think, Toronto National Airport, or it's one of the Canadian airports. So, and the the beginning of the song when they're going ding, 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 that little, those little codes you hear at the at the beginning, that's actually like Morse code, if if you can believe that. I think it spells out YYZ, doesn't it? Yeah. And of course, live they would use that they would use that song to incorporate a drum solo by Neil Peart. And I was reading up on this a little bit. Apparently, uh, YYZ was nominated for a Grammy. Yeah, best instrumental performance. I think it was years later, wasn't it? Or was off one of the live? Was it off one of the live albums? No, as far as I know, it was from that year. Um, it was nominated for a Grammy. I mean, it could have been. I didn't know that. that yeah, it makes sense. It is one of their defining uh, non-single cuts. You know, it's one of definitely one of the cuts that you, you remember from this album. The whole of side one, the album is a little bit on the top-heavy side, but the whole of side one has pretty much entered classic rock radio territory. You know, I was just going to say that. You beat me to it. You're right. I mean, obviously, Tom Sawyer and Limelight being the most prominent examples of that, and Red Bar Cheddar, to a lesser extent, and, you know, YYZ, just by association. I mean, I don't know if, I don't know if I've heard YYZ too many times on the radio, but I've probably heard it once or twice. It's a definite fan favorite. I mean, people, everybody knows that song. Right. And that's, and, you know, even though because this album is front-loaded, that doesn't mean Side 2 is any lesser. It's just that, you know, Side 2, there's only three songs, but they're longer songs, and they're... You know, a bit more experimental when you compare them to side one. I mean, you've got uh, Camera Eye, you know, Witch Hunt, and, of course, the, the final track, Vital Signs, which uh, definitely incorporates some of the reggae that Rush had been bringing into their sound over the last, you know, album or so. Yeah, that's the first song where you definitely hear the police kind of influence. And it's, and it's kind of signposting ahead to the next album in a major way. Because the next song in the next album is New World Man. That continues that kind of like reggae police, you know, Zenyatta Mandata kind of influence. Right. And the funny thing is, is that this is the same. Later this year, we'll, we'll see the police release uh, Ghost in the Machine, which kind of see, sees them starting to move away from the reggae sound into more of a straightforward pop pop sound or you know it's less about the reggae and more about you know sting and company experimenting i think rush is a serious band that had lightened up a little bit with new wave influences whereas the police were a new wave band that kind of went in the opposite direction um there's a song on ghost in the machine called invisible sun that does sound a bit rush like doesn't it yeah, I guess, you know, I never thought about that, but you're right. I, I guess, in a way, it's it's definitely a more serious song, and it's definitely not a song that, you know, the police ever released as a single, although I did hear it on the radio back in the day. But getting back to Rush, um, this was a, a pivotal album for me in that my cousin uh, and I were taking guitar lessons at the time, and our guitar instructor, this guy Russ, uh, periodically would make us cassettes of stuff that he wanted, he thought we should listen to. And I'll never forget, he made he made me a cassette of uh, moving pictures. And it turned me on to Rush. I mean, I became a fan, but my cousin, 
he became an uber rush fan you know to this day they're his favorite band and you know it became like a religion to him in a sense rush are definitely um one of the most accessible bands of the Prague era and they're a great sort of like you know a a gateway band you can go on the one hand to like you know dream theater uh spock's beard that kind of stuff or you can go all the way in the other direction you know back toward like vandercraft generator or or gabriel era genesis you know there's a million ways you can go with rush as the gateway and this is definitely a, a great gateway album and i'm sure it was a gateway album for many many fans um you know like I said, they just took what they did on the previous album and they perfected it here and that's not to say that they won't release great albums after this they'll they'll release several of them but this is where just everything gelled you know getty lee's bass and vocals and keyboards alex lifeson's guitar and of course uh the professor neil Peart's drumming and lyrics and it's just something that really put them on the path like you said this made them you know about as mainstream as they were ever going to be and you know they had a presence on the charts from this point going forward and definitely influenced a lot of musicians and bands uh you know you, you should, all you have to do is go on the internet and you know read up and check out things and you can find these in these musicians who will cite rush as a as a key influence oh absolutely i think of the five albums that we're doing today moving pictures is probably the one that's had the most long-term impact of any of them yeah i agree you know this this album you know is celebrated i mean obviously it's its 40th anniversary this year and it seems like you know every i mean back in 2010 rush did a tour where they performed the entire you know moving pictures album you know in its entirety so what does that tell you yeah it's definitely their yes album this album is their top-selling album for a reason? It's um, it's very likely their their flagship release. Oh right, oh definitely. I mean, and, and everything about it, you know, obviously the, the sound is impeccable. The the musicianship and in the songs and the arrangements are good. I mean, even the you know the cover artwork by Hugh Syme, which of course is a literal interpretation of a very literal you know gag on you know moving pictures as the, you see people holding paintings and moving them around. Uh, one of them is dogs playing poker. There's another one with a witch burning. You know, they they also wrote to like themes on the record, so to speak. Rush definitely had that sense of humor about themselves. I mean, they took what they did seriously, but at the same time, they were able to you know make fun of themselves. I mean, if you if you've ever seen Rush live, you know that they are not above self-deprecation and uh, having a little fun at their own expense. Yeah, it definitely keeps things from getting too pretentious and hoity-toity. Right. And, you know, you definitely, you know, and of course, you know, Neil Peart occasionally, his lyrics would come under fire. I, I do remember this one of the reviews of this album, and it might have been in like Circus or something like that, where they just, they refer to, you know, one of his lyrics as lyrical caca or something like that. I'm like, boy, that's a clever turn of phrase to describe a Rush lyric, isn't it? Then again, he did write Catch the Spit. So, Well, you know, they can't all be gems. And I think you have to look at it in the broader context of what the message is he's trying to get across. And he's, you're, Mark's referring to Tom Sawyer, of course. You know, probably the, I would call the quote-unquote hit single of this album. You know. Yeah, it is the representative track. His lyrics do get a little ambiguous sometimes, but for the most part, you pretty much know what they're talking about and you can sort of free associate poetically to where you can kind of grasp the context occasionally you know it's either a little bit personal or you just you know you have trouble occasionally but for the most part you're going to be singing along and air guitaring along and you're really not going to notice any lyrical discrepancies well, Rush is also a band where, you know, you're going to be doing air guitar, you're going to be doing air bass, and you're definitely going to be doing air drums because it's a prerequisite if you go to a Rush show, you know, that you're going to be doing air. If you've seen videos of them, you'll see people in the audience doing, trying to replicate uh, the professor's drum fills. Yeah, they are the ultimate guitar hero band. 
Uh, they're just they're just a great band all around. I mean, you know, they did things on their own terms always, even to the point when they did their last tour in 2015. You know, they went out on their own terms. They didn't do the uh, cliche farewell tour that everybody else does and then comes back, you know, two years later because they're bored or out of money. These guys, you know, went out on their own terms. And, you know, when you look at their legacy, it's a hell of a legacy, you know, and, and I say that about all of them. You know, they, they, they all were equal part of that band and very uh, the dynamics of that band beyond compare. Yeah, they are the success story of rock, how to do it right. How to come in right, how to go out right. You know, how to keep the record companies at bay. You know, you never heard stories about them trying to tell Rush to do ballads or love songs or, you know, if Rush adjusted to trends or tried new things, it was because I think they wanted to and they were interested as musicians in growing. Absolutely. Anyhow, I think that moving pictures is the best illustration of that principle and probably cut for cut the best rush album i agree and i think that sums that up pretty quick pretty good don't you i think so before we move on to our next album let's give an honorable mention to another rush album that came out in 1981 let's talk about the immortal exit stage left which actually is it's my entry point into the group that's the first album that i ever paid attention to the classic double live album, which contains a fair amount of moving pictures, um, and of course excerpts from the past couple records. These live versions are incredibly faithful to the studio renditions. Uh, Close to the Heart was a radio single. I remember hearing that, and that was pretty much the first Rush song that I heard on the radio. Wow. I mean, the other thing that's interesting, too, if you look at it, is that this double live album does not duplicate any tracks from the previous double live album from a few years earlier. And this really just picks up where that album left off and chronicles, you know, 1977 through, of course, 1981. It's kind of almost like a quote unquote greatest hits of the last, you know, four Rush studio albums. And yeah, it's I mean, that's a that's a not a bad way to start like you said it's very faithful and i think that album was a little more polished i think in terms of the post-production as opposed to the first one which i believe there were no overdubs no the, all the world stage the previous double live album it was very rough and ready by comparison um exit stage left is definitely a little more polished and there might be a debate over just how what percentage live it actually is my guess would be somewhere around 60 to 70 percent but it's um it it does function as a greatest hits album of the of the late 70s early 80s period and it definitely gives you the perspective of, of how rush grew in those years and it also provided us with uh the very first uh, rush vhs tape or you know later dvd uh, a video documentary of that tour called exit stage left we just wanted to throw that in because like i said you know it, uh, it also came out in 1981 so you know good on you rush and uh it was a hell of a year for to, for rush that was for sure yeah that's definitely the perfect camper on that year it encapsulates that whole period because the next album signals begins an entirely new chapter yeah and we'll have to tackle that at a later point uh, our next album is the, is the album Fair Warning, and that's, of course, by Van Halen, which was released on April 29th, 1981, and produced by Ted Templeman. This album found Van Halen going kind of dark in a, in a way, um, in term, not only in terms of their sound, but their lyrical content. This was less on the party-hardy side and more about you know stuff that was kind of going on, maybe stuff they were thinking about. They were definitely exploring the dark side of things. And I know from reading about this period that uh, Eddie wasn't happy with David Lee Roth. Uh, they creatively, you know, Eddie Van Halen is a guitar player and David Lee Roth is a singer and lyricist. They obviously worked well. They obviously worked well off of each other in terms of creating. But you have this yin and yang with Eddie being kind of like the pure musician who just wants to play and write songs and 
David Lee Roth, who wants to be every man to everything and wants the world. And I think, you know, Eddie got a little more control of things on this album. Now, depending on the day of the week, if you ask me what my favorite Van Halen album is, it's either the first album or this album. But since we're doing 1981, I'm going to say that Fair Warning is probably my favorite Van Halen album. It's not the most representative album of that era, but it is the one that stands out a bit. Uh, it does have less of that vaudeville type atmosphere. Um, it is more of sort of like, you know, aggressive, you know, songs like So This Is Love, Push Comes to Shove. It, it does have more of a riff-based, almost kind of like, you know, Sabbathy kind of feel to it. I could see that. And, uh, you know, Black Sabbath was a, a big influence on Eddie. I mean, at one point, I think he wanted to call Van Halen Rat Salad after one of uh, Van, uh, Black Sabbath's instr- instrumentals. But, yeah, I think, you know, obviously the previous album uh, from 1980, Women and Show First, had, had shown the band, you know, moving into sort of darker territory song wise. And, of course, this album, like the previous one, there's, there are no cover tunes. I mean, you've got Eddie doing stuff like that, those that mad guitar intro to Mean Street, which, you know, just goes on for about a minute before the rest of the band even kicks in. And I read in an interview that he was trying to do what the funk bass players of that time were doing on, the, you know, the guitar that when that fades in, you're just bowled over by Eddie's musicianship and. You know, just when you think you've heard Eddie play at his best, he tops it and takes it into another realm. Yeah, he definitely explored himself to a large degree on that on that album. It it sets the stage for all those sort of like crazy intros, like the full bug and cathedral that he does in the next album. They were definitely experimenting with sound, and you know, there were the for years uh, they were going around saying Eddie would say that he and uh, the engineer Don Landy were would sneak were going to the studio, sneaking to the studio late at night. And putting down all this stuff. But last year, Ted Templeman, the producer, came out with his autobiography and he said, you know, they weren't sneaking around. He he said he knew they were going. They were he knew they were going into the studio. They told him. And he was fine with it because he figured maybe not having him around would take some of the pressure off and Eddie could just loosen up a bit. You know, like I said, musically it's darker, lyrically it's darker, and even song wise, there's some experimentation. I mean, you've got Push Comes to Shove, which is almost like this kind of reggae-ish sort of shuffle. And it's very moody, and it's very... It's definitely not something you would have heard on the first couple of Van Halen albums. And even on this album, you can hear the rhythm section better than you can on the other ones. I mean, one of the criticisms of the early Van Halen productions was that you couldn't hear Alex Van Halen, the drummer, and Michael Anthony, the bass player. But there are some songs in here where you they're really up there in the mix, and they're kicking butt. I mean, they're really pr- moving the band along. The production is, is a quite a bit drier on this record than it was on the first three. You know, the, the, part of the secret of the first album is how drenched and reverb it is. That's why the band sounds so huge. This album, it kind of dries out a little bit. It's more up front. And I think also... This is Eddie's album where, you know, he wants to come to the forefront and be Eddie the serious musician and have that define the tone of the band. Uh, this is the one album where David Lee Roth kind of, I won't say takes a back seat, but he's definitely not driving the ship 24-7 the way that he was on the, on the previous albums or the way that he would try to do again on the next two albums. Yeah, agreed. But of course, you know, you know, being Dave, some of the Rothisms are going to creep into it. I mean, the closest thing that this album really had to a, a, a hit single would be Unchained, which of course was a song you heard on the radio and they would do live. And at one point in Unchained, after the guitar solo, when it comes back, Dave does one of his little, you know, goofy kind of vaudeville raps. And at one point you hear a voice go, come on, Dave, give me a break. And for years, I used to always wonder who that was. Well, it turns out it was Ted Templeman. And, you know, when you listen to that, when you hear it, you can almost see Ted Templeman's eyes rolling or him having some kind of a grimace on his face as he says, you know, come on, Dave, give me a break. I mean, he may have said it tongue in cheek, but it, it definitely adds to the song and shows you that, you know, 
Dave probably, you know, pushed them to their limits sometimes in terms of his shtick. Dave's the kind of guy that's great for a half-hour interview, but I think he does tend to use up people around him pretty pretty fairly quickly. But, yeah, you know, there's some, like I said, great songs on here. I mean, obviously, Mean Street, you've got Sinner's Swing, which is very driving, very aggressive, and very dark. I mean, and then you've got Hear About It Later, which, you know, is, you know, Will You Love Me In My Wheelchair, you know, Pay My Bills. And you think about it, when they recorded this, they were still pretty young guys. So, you know, Roth had his finger on something. I mean, he may not have been at the forefront as he'd been on the previous records, but I think he still rose to the occasion. You know, Eddie and he may have not been getting along or maybe they weren't the best of friends, but they still sparked each other in terms of creativity and the the music. Yeah, I mean, this album is one that at the time was probably the least selling album of the catalog, but 40 years later, it's definitely gone, you know, at least double platinum. So it, it has survived the test of time due to those factors. And it has the most interesting backstories of, of any Van Halen album. So it'll always have that. Right. And of course you get like the first one of the first instances of a of a keyboard really being prominent, uh, the song Sunday Afternoon in the Park, which is Eddie using some kind of a keyboard or synthesizer and it's just this kind of bizarro instrumental. But it's very memorable and then it crossfades into the final song, One Foot Out the Door, which is, you know, just very driving and Eddie's just playing the hell out of his guitar during the solo part and the uh, fade out of the song as well. Yeah, it's definitely one of the most memorable albums from the standpoint of musicianship, that's for sure. And even the cover artwork uh, for, for Van Halen out at that point was very unusual, uh, very different. I, you know, you see, like, it's this weird painting where some guy is getting beat up on, and it's just, it's, like I said, it's kind of abstract, but it's very memorable. Although some people, you know, I probably think it's a little too abstract for Van Halen. But this album just represents a point in the band's history where, you know, they were probably in a dark place, but they were making the most of it. I mean, they had the right team in place to capture that aesthetic. I mean, you know, Templeman, you know, maybe they were going in the studio late at night. But Templeman could pull it together in the final mix and, you know, make it interesting. It's a band that scaled the heights of success. They're not as hungry as they were. Now, you know, all the issues that were pasted over on the rise of success are now being sort of exposed. But it's early enough to where they can they can find a way, to, you know, to, to sidestep past it for at least, you know, two more albums. So... They're not at any any kind of crisis point here, but it is kind of like it, it's the initial euphorias wore off, and now they're taking stock of where they really are. And I'm glad you know they were at a, they were they were had a producer and they had the right people where they could capture that, put it on vinyl, and then you know move on to the next thing. I agree. And of course, you know this album is a, another testament to the genius of Eddie Van Halen. Who, of course, you know, we lost last year and, um, you know, this stuff like this is just going to continue to endure. Our next album is uh, Fire of Unknown Origin by Blue Oyster Cult. This was released in June of 1981 and was produced by Martin Birch. i got to say that, boy, Blue Oyster Cult came into the 80s on a strong note. I mean, the previous year they did Cultsaurus Erectus, which was, of course, their first album produced by Martin Birch. And they're just keeping it going and taking it to another level on this record, which produced one of their, you know, key classic rock radio hits in Burning For You. This is BOC's AOR masterpiece, but it's also one of their most characteristic records. Much like Rush, they managed to find the balance between upholding their image and kind of mainstreaming their sound to the extent that it needed to be. And they pretty much hit the balance uh, pretty much on the head with this one. Right. I mean, when you start the album and you hear the first song, the title track of the album, you hear the way they're integrating, you know, the more modern keyboards, modern for that time, 
and they're bringing it right in line with what other people are doing, and yet still managing to be Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah, it was definitely hard. It was definitely a tightrope that had to be walked. Some Obviously, it's not quite as out there audacious as the first three black and white albums, but for its time and, and for the conditions it was created under, it's still extremely you know recognizable as the work of BOC. It has, you know, the Patti Smith lyrics. It has, you know, the minor key, the minor chords. It has the atmosphere that needs to be there to be, you know, a a BOC creation. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, of course, you know, some of these songs were written and uh, were featured in the movie, the the animated movie Heavy Metal, uh, which was based on a... (laughs) which is based on a comic book magazine from the UK. And when I say comic book, this was not a comic book for little kids. Uh, Veteran of the Psychic Wars was definitely in that movie. I, I do remember that. And that's a that's a great song. I mean, just the title alone, Veteran of the Psychic Wars, you see that title and you go, okay, I want to hear this song. I want to know what it's about. Yeah, it's about PTSD from some sort of space conflict, science fiction <laughs> I mean, it's it's packed with metaphors, but the song itself, the atmosphere of it is extremely foreboding and moody. Um, Eric Bloom sings that song to absolute perfection. That's one of his best vocal performances, and the band itself definitely rises to the occasion. Oh, yeah, and I, I'm just looking this up. The, the song was co-written by Michael Moorcock, who was a fantasy writer, um, sword sorcery, fantasy-type writer, and he had co-written Black Blade on the previous album and had uh, co-written The Great Sun Jester on the Mirrors album. So these guys were obviously tuned into, you know, geek stuff and weren't weren't embarrassed by it. I mean, they they were getting authors to, you know, noted authors to write with them. This, the, everything about it, even the album cover, you know, you look at it and it's like, oh, this is very intriguing. Because I didn't buy the album back in 1981, but I believe I had the single for Burning For You. And that, like I said, that's a song that's become a classic rock staple. I mean, that Don't Fear the Reaper and Godzilla are like the three key go-to tracks that you're going to hear over and over again. But Burning, it's a great song. And uh, of course, it's like... Don't Fear the Reaper. It's also sung by the guitar player, Buck Dharma, a.k.a. Donald Roser. They were also capitalizing on the fact that the whole Joan Crawford thing had become in vogue again because of the the book Mommy Dearest, which had been written by Joan Crawford's daughter. So, you know, we have Joan Crawford has risen from the grave. And how many bands would write a song about an actress who, you know, whose time had long since passed? Well, Joan Crawford is... You know, obviously, it's an indulgence in camp. There's a great deal of social satire there. And like you said, there's also a bit of, you know, nerdiness, geekiness, which, you know, not a lot of bands were indulging, at least publicly. You know, BOC kind of does in the same area as Rush in that one. You can tell these are guys who like fantasy novels and comic books. Oh, definitely. And, I, I you know, I mean, when I saw them uh, in 2018... The opening music was from Game of Thrones. You know, Eric Bloom, you know, he's he's into online gaming. He's into fantasy. He's into all this stuff. And he hasn't lost that, you know, even at this stage of the game, you know, 20, 40 years later. Yeah, I think that's definitely a side of them that they draw, like, you know, endless inspiration from. It's an album that shows, you know, great musicianship. They have a definite command what it takes to make AOR music in, in that era. But they're like Rush, they're going to do it using the BOC formula first and foremost. Right, and this album was also very significant in that this is the final album by the original lineup. Um, after this, Albert Bouchard, the drummer, would leave, and then eventually in years, the, you know, the other Bouchard, the bass player, would leave. And they would be actually become more susceptible to record company, you know, interference in years to come. And it's kind of, you know, sort of, I don't know if it's ironic, but it's definitely like, you know, you hear you are reaching this sort of plateau and then everything just kind of falls apart after that. Yeah, it is the end of the classic BOC era. 
the albums that follow, they have their moments, but this is it's not exactly their best album. It's definitely them going out at a commercial peak, and in a lot of ways an artistic peak as well. And if you want to know more about Blue Oyster Cult, I suggest you listen to our episode, uh, episode five, I think it was, where we did an entire episode about the band with our friend Gary Schaller from Podcast. We had a lot of fun doing that, and we talk, you know, we do talk about this album, but we talk about some of the other albums as well and the band, and uh, check it out. You won't regret it. Yeah, it's definitely worth a listen. All right, with that, we will move on to our next album. It's the fourth album we're going to be looking at, and appropriately enough, it's Foreigner 4, which was released on July 2nd, 1981, produced by Robert John Mutlang and Mick Jones. Boy, this album, you know, Foreigner had had pretty, you know, solid success before this, but this just propelled them to another level. Interestingly enough, the band was pared down to a four-piece by this time. Technically, you know, there, there wasn't a keyboard player in the band, although Mick Jones played some keyboards, and they had other keyboard players guesting, among which one of them was a guy named Tom Dolby, who would later go on to greater success by his full name, Thomas Dolby, and he, he would blind us with science. That's true. This album, Foreigner 4, is the pinnacle of Foreigner's career, and in many ways the absolute definition of AOR. This pretty much is everything that rock radio was was climaxing toward in, in the period just before MTV. This and, and Escape by Journey are pretty much the, the crown jewels of AOR. Maybe the fourth album by Toto could be put in there. But when I think AOR, I, I definitely think this album, I think Escape by Journey... These are the ones that define that form that I can still listen to. Yeah, this was definitely an instance where hearing these songs on the radio made me want to go out and buy this album. You're right. This album was tailored, tailor made for, you know, AOR. And AOR, by the way, for those of you who, you know, may be under the age of 40 or 30, stands for album oriented rock, which was a format that. It played singles, but they also played album cuts as well. This is back when radio formats were a little looser. But yeah, I mean, Robert John Mutt-Lang was really starting to hone in on his sound. And obviously, you know, Mick Jones was no slouch in the production department either. I mean, Mick Jones had a you know, vested interest in Foreigner being a band that had a accessible sound and that could, you know, achieve massive chart success. I mean... You had Nightlife, you had Jukebox Hero, which had that kind of moody bass synth intro. Uh, Waiting for a Girl Like You, which of course was the power ballad extraordinaire, which would pave the way for an even bigger power ballad a few years down the road. Yeah, this record, I mean, the band was firing on all cylinders. You know, just they just had hit after hit after hit. And like I said, it wasn't like the previous albums were any slouch. Foreigner was a very hot commercial band but they took it to the stratosphere on this one I, I think artistically this represents a peak for them as well this is one of the, the most characteristic uh, Mutt Lang productions this and uh, Back in Black are probably two of his, two of his most famous productions uh, Mutt Lang of course goes on to create what you can almost call country AOR which Shania Twain some years later he's still very much involved in perfecting the AOR genre and he, he his productions pretty much define you know the sound of AOR you know and we should mention also this album contains Urgent which is almost like an update of Brown Sugar updated 10 years later you know with the sexy message rather than the slightly racist message I never thought of Urgent as being an update of Brown Sugar and, of course, what's interesting about it was they got Junior Walker, the uh, saxophone, the sole saxophone player from the 60s, to do the sax solo on this. This was a song that was by a guitar-driven, you know, keyboard-driven band that had a sax solo in it. I mean, how many of those type of bands would put a sax solo into one of those songs in 1981? Yeah, they were definitely, they were taking the last little bits of, of disco dance music formatted 
back into commercial rock and roll and creating sort of the perfect radio formula. They were kind of like the hard rock hall of notes. They had something for everybody, and that's pretty much the, the, the source of their appeal. And to top it all off with uh, one of the most uncharacteristic hypnosis covers ever. Yeah, but I mean, if you grew up, you know, watching movies or TV, you recognize that it, it's 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 very identifiable, and it kind of jumps out at you in a record rack. Yeah, it's, it's definitely one of the perfect formulas. It was the classic case of uh, you know mustering all of your artistic forces in the service of commercialism, but having just enough genuine inspiration, you know, to make to make it palatable even to people whose main interest was not commercial rock. Oh, definitely. And, you know, and like I said before, you know, for a band that uh, didn't technically have a keyboard player, there's certainly a lot of keyboards on this album, a lot of synthesizers. It really achieved a balance between guitars and synthesizers. This was definitely an album of the 1980s, but yet, you know, it's still very much driven by Mick Jones's guitar, and of course, we have we we haven't even mentioned Lou Graham at this point, the great Lou Graham, who, you know, was definitely one of the great hard rock vocalists of all time, and you know, he just sings his ass off on this album. I mean, he's really, you know, he's singing about the nightlife, the jukebox heroes, and he's just taking it like like everything else in this album. He's just taking it to another level. Yeah, this is definitely Lou Graham's classic moment as well. Yeah, this is definitely Lou Graham's defining moment as a vocalist. They would get a lot of mileage out of this album. I mean, they would, you know, obviously they were touring and probably making a lot of money. So much so that the following year, they didn't even put out a record. In fact, they wouldn't put out a record for another three years, which, you know, back in the early 80s, if you were a hot band on a commercial hot streak, you did not take three years between albums. But, you know, Foreigner did. You know, I've, one of the things I've always felt, though, I feel that Mick Jones is kind of underrated as a guitar player. He's a very good, you know, rhythm and lead player, but I think he's more known as being kind of like a producer songwriter type. And, you know, he's still with the band to this day, but, you know, you don't, when you hear about great guitar players, you never hear people say Mick Jones, you know, you know, and of course he also had the, he also shared a name with Mick Jones, another guitar player named Mick Jones at the same time who was in The Clash. So, you know, maybe that contributed to it. But, yeah, Foreigner just, they were on fire at this point. And like you said, this was an album that was really made for AOR, exploited it, and took full advantage of the format. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, this is one of the albums that definitely defines the entire AOR genre as a whole. Yep, and it was another feather in Mutt Lang's cap because, you know, he just kept building on that. I have to imagine that, you know, working with Mick Jones and, you know, who had was very had very definite ideas about what Foreigner should sound like, you know, probably helped propel his career as well. And it is also interesting that, you know, when Van Halen finally did let go of David Lee Roth, they also, of course, had to let go of Ted Templeman. And it's interesting that the first... Maybe not the first person, but the person that they eventually chose to produce their, their first album that David Lee Roth was Mick Jones. Well, yeah, I mean, you got to consider that by the mid-80s, Mick Jones, especially because of his work with Foreigner, he was hot. I mean, you know, around that time, it was 1984, 1985, when I Want to Know What Love Is came out, and he was one of the biggest ones out there. So I imagine that a lot of people, I mean, he, he also produced Billy Joel's album Stormfront uh, a few years after that even. You know, when you're when you're the writer, guitarist, producer in a major band and you're on fire, everybody, like Billy Squire said, everybody wants you. Absolutely. I was just going to say, you better have your emotions in motion at that point. And, you know, the interesting thing, too, is although we're not going to talk about it in this episode, Billy Squire also had a, an album out in 1981 that put him it that put him on the map you know very interesting and with that we're going to move on to our final album of this show and this album is precious time by pat benatar which was released on july 6th 1981 and it was produced by keith olsen and neil giraldo this is her third album and her third album you know in a row since 1979 
she just keeps building on her success. You know, the first album did, you know, moderately well. The previous album, of course, had Hit Me With Your Best Shot and Hell Is For Children and You Better Run. And this album just built on it. I mean, you had the singles Fire and Ice and Promises in the Dark, which just found Pat Benatar and her band, which was led by Neil Giraldo, who was her boyfriend at the time and is now her husband. And this record, boy, Pat Benatar was not only in great voice, but she had great songs and a great band to put those songs across. I remember the videos from this Promising in the Dark, this is back when, you know, videos were just simple. A very simple performance clip. They're just on stage. She's singing. There's no uh, storyline. There's no conceptual thing going on. For someone who was as small as she was in, tr- in terms of her height and her weight, Pat Benatar, man, her voice was huge. I think her along with, you know, like Debbie Harry, you know, maybe like Kate Bush and some of the other female vocalists of the time, Joan Jett, they were really starting to set the stage for women as a major rock and roll force. Yeah, she does have the distinction of being, you know, one of the first tough girls, so to speak. Uh, She was no shrinking violent, that's for sure. A lot of, dare I say, ballsiness um, abounds on this album. Oh, definitely. You know, she was definitely someone who had to put up with a lot of uh, sexist record executives who were trying to capitalize more on her, you know, her beauty and the fact that she was a chick. She had talent. I mean, she started out, she could sing, she was singing, you know, like operettas and stuff like that. She was forced to be reckoned with, and she still is. I mean, she's still out there and she's still doing it. But these albums that she did, especially in the early to mid 80s, really helped define her sound you know there's nothing better when you see an artist who's coming into her own the thing about pat benatar on the album covers you just see her because you know obviously the record company wanted to use that as a selling point but if you look at the back cover on most of them it's her in the band she considered what they had to be a band she didn't consider herself to be a quote-unquote solo artist and her boyfriend who is now her longtime husband you know neil giraldo was playing the guitar, co-writing some of the songs, and co-producing. So he had a vested interest in, you know, these albums being uh, the best that they could be. Yeah, she kept the same band going for at least the five, first five or six albums. They, they all do share the same kind of sound, the same kind of, like, ambience. She was not hard rock, but she was not soft rock. She was not overtly commercial, but she wasn't uncommercial. She was pretty much right down the line of what rock and roll radio needed in 1981. So she definitely fit a niche, and she fit it well. And, I mean, this album, you know, there were, the, the title track is a great song. It's it's actually very long, and I do think they made a video for it that may have been a little conceptual, Precious Time, but it's a great song, and it's very much, you know, close, it's probably as close to an epic as Pat Benatar would get. Uh, like I said, you know, this album starts off with Promises in the Dark, which starts off with this sort of stark piano beginning, and then it just kicks in, and it's a full-out rocker. You know, you've got Fire and Ice, which was the first single, which is very, it's kind of slinky at first, and it's you're hearing the bass, the guitar is kind of in the background. And then, of course, the guitar kicks in, and she's really belting it out on the choruses. You've, you've even got some reggae on here with the song It's a Tough Life, that's solely credit to Neil Giraldos. And, you know, there's a cover tune also called Just Like Me. I didn't realize it was a cover tune when I first heard it, but apparently it's a, a Paul Revere and the Raiders song from 1960s. So, you know, Pat definitely was not above doing cover tunes, uh, whether that was at her own volition or was it was a record company thing. And, of course, the album ends with a, a version of Helter Skelter, which, you know, I think she does a pretty good job of it. Well, the early 80s was a time when the 70s were very quickly receding into the background, and a lot of that 60s revivalism was coming in. Um, Linda Ronstadt at the same time had a bunch of 60s covers and her 80s albums. I think uh, they were wanting to get back to that more straightforward kind of 60s pop style and leave a lot of like the heavy metal and progressive rock stuff behind. It was definitely, again... 
creating a formula for radio that could be sustainable throughout the decade. Their careers are running in parallel, so to speak. You've got them running parallel, but Linda's more of a pop singer. I mean, not that she didn't do some rock and roll, but Pat Benatar was more harder-edged and more, you know, maybe a bit more feminist in her in her outlook and her delivery. Her and Neil Giraldo weren't weren't above you know experimenting musically. I mean, you've got songs like Evil Genius where they've got a horn section, and then you know they just effortlessly kind of glide between them and rockers like Take It Any Way You Want It, which you know it's a nice it's a nice song that kind of flows along. Not a not one of not a great song, but a very listenable song. I mean, this is not my favorite Pat Benatar album. I think for some people, I know a friend of mine. This is definitely his favorite. But I think my my favorite one will be the next one that comes out the following year. But she definitely was building her career, and she was, like I said, she was a force to be reckoned with in terms of her singing, which is, of course, the most important thing. She really did have a great voice. She wasn't taking any guff, and she had to, you know, kind of stand her ground and fight to you know, maintain her integrity. You know, she did not want to be a sex kitten. She didn't want to, you know, uh, be uh, a bimbo. And although, you know, she was very photogenic and had very beautiful, you know, very beautiful eyes and was a very good looking woman, she was not going to play the game that their the record company executives would have liked her to play. Oh, yeah. She was definitely trying to establish something on her own be t- to be taken seriously with and i think she went a long way toward it with this particular record i'm yeah. not sure if this is the, the defining album of her career but it's 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 definitely a respectable statement this album was co-produced of course by keith olsen who was a, quite a major producer back in those days he had worked with uh, among others fleetwood mac and you have somebody there who's you know representing the old guard and then you have the, you know, the new guard represented by, you know, Neil Giraldo, you know, the, her, the guitarist, co-writer, and of course co-producer. So there's definitely some major talent working behind the scenes here, and that's why this album is what it is. I can agree with that. It's it's definitely uh, it's it's smooth, it's polished, but it does have some impact. It does have some teeth to it. It's it's a mature, it's very polished, you know, again, it's a very AOR production. Yeah, and I think, you know, Pat Benatar's Precious Time, obviously it's an album that's really kind of endemic of that era, you know, that AOR era where, you know, you were listening to FM rock stations, and she heard that album and those songs uh, really fit the bill, they really fit, fit the aesthetic, you know, that's why when you go back to 1981, I think that's an album that really is a big part of it. And she was, you know, she had emerged as a major force and uh, a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, the production of that album, the, uh, the the general aesthetic, it all fits with that era. And it much of it still holds up. You know, she still sounds credible as a rock singer and, and a rock personality take her on her own terms and she delivers and even though one of the songs on the album is called take it any way you want it uh you're gonna take it her way or else yeah don't waste your precious time thinking differently but i'm bum. some of you may have noticed that you know we covered five albums from 1981 but you're saying wait a minute where's this album where's that album and mark even alluded to one of the albums that we didn't talk about which was journey's escape I think at some point down the road this year, we should probably do a part two and cover five more albums from 1981 because this really just scratches the surface as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's going to be a while before we can put the final 86 and 81. <laughs> 86 and 81. You're just you're hitting them out of the park tonight, Mark. I can't help it. They keep lobbing them. And as we're recording this, uh, sadly, we've lost two... Um, major rock and roll forces and uh, i'll let mark talk about the first one well this one goes out to greg hot take Troyan, because we uh unfortunately lost one of the big ones this week uh james steinman who was the songwriting force behind you know one of the all-time best-selling albums uh 40 million copies thus far 
we're talking about Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell, which, if you recall, down in the right-hand corner of the album is that big, remember it said Songs by Jim Steinman? Yeah, that wasn't something you saw very often or at all in the 70s, really. I mean, generally, the the artist would have their name or their logo on the cover, and that would be it. Obviously, Steinman must have been somebody of some pedigree or some prestige that he was able to get that credit on there. Well, Jim had a, a long history at that point in musical theater, you know, and, and hooking up with Meatloaf was exactly right up his alley. Meatloaf, of course, had had, his, had made his name in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and Jim was the kind of guy who wrote songs that fit exactly with that aesthetic. So it, it was a partnership made in heaven or hell, if you're a bat. Well, it's funny. I, I obviously I remember that album, and one of the things that was always striking about it was the cover artwork. It was just one of those albums that jumped out at you if you walked by a record rack. And of course, you know, Meatloaf was huge in 1977, 78. Paradise by the Dashboard Light, you know, two out of three ain't bad. So, you know, it was a, it was obviously a marriage of the right singer and very theatrical rock and roll, and. Uh, you know, to quote one of Jim Steinman's songs, uh, I guess rock and roll dreams come through. I absolutely do. So a uh, tip of the hat to Jim Steinman. We'll miss you, buddy. What can I say? Um, bad Out of Hell Part 3 kind of sucked, but 2 Out of 3 ain't bad. That's right. The second one did well. I mean, what was that, like 15, 14, 15 years after the first one? Mm-hmm. You do anything for love, I won't do that. Uh, we, don't, we should also mention that Jim wrote uh, Holding Out for a Hero and Total Eclipse of the Heart for Bonnie Tyler. Uh, he wrote a ton of songs for other people as well. And I was also reminded uh, before Jim Steinman's passing that he had also been the first producer hired to produce Def Leppard's Hysteria album. That's right. Uh, they apparently... Uh, gave him something like $100,000 to sit there for two weeks, and then another $100,000 to go away. We're not exactly sure what transpired there, but apparently it, it wasn't the magic that they had with uh, with Mutt Lang, but nice try. Yeah, and, uh, you know, considering what happened, it's you know they probably made the right move, and that's not meant as disrespectful Jim Steinman. You know, sometimes people just don't work out. Some people just don't creatively click. Well, you can picture Jim Steinman working with a singer with a theatrical background and a big booming voice like Meatloaf or someone, you know, with, again, with a musical theater background, someone like Bonnie Tyler. Joe Elliott, on the other hand, uh, whatever his strengths in life may be, uh, big booming tenor is probably not among them. No, I like the Leppard, but... Joe Elliott, you know, he's a he's a kid from an industrial town and, you know, is probably self-taught as far as singing goes. We'll have to save that for our Def Leppard episode. Anyhow, so long to Jim Steinman. We love you, buddy, and good luck, you know. I guess heaven couldn't wait. And also this week, um, also we lost another rock and roll titan. Les McEwen, the lead singer for the Bay City Rollers, it was announced on Thursday that he died Tuesday, and this is, you know, Tuesday, April the 20th, in his home. Uh, the cause of death is not known at this time, but it was a, it was shocking. And, of course, I've been a Bay City Rollers fan since 1977, almost as long as I've been a Kiss fan. And this was indeed a shock. You know, obviously, a few months ago, we did our Bay City Rollers episode, and you know, Les, Les was the consummate front man. You know, he had that energy and that, you know, aura about him. And he was, you know, had that little bit of cockiness. And that, you know, translated into record sales and, you know, concert tickets. A lot of girls back in the 70s just went completely nuts when Les McEwen would uh, take the stage with the Bay City Rollers. It was kind of a shocking loss because he appeared to be, you know, if not in the peak of health, at least nowhere near in danger. And you have to wonder if this was maybe like the tail end of COVID. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know he in the past he'd battled, uh, you know, drug addiction and alcoholism. But by all accounts, he seemed to have, you know, gotten it under control. 
And in fact, I believe up till the time he passed away, he was planning to do some shows with his own Bay City Rollers group. And in fact, I, I've often said that if Les McEwen ever comes to the States and he comes anywhere near here with his group, you know, I'll go see him because that's probably the closest thing I'll get to seeing the real thing. But that's not going to happen now. And um, it's sad because I, you know, like I said in our episode, the Bay City Roller episode we did back in January, I enjoy the Rollers music. I still do to this day. And, you know, we've already lost Alan Longmuir and Ian Mitchell. So I don't know what to say, but, you know, Les, you were you were great. You know, we love you. It's Saturday night when we're recording this. How appropriate. And, you know, one of the Rollers songs was called Remember. And uh, we certainly will remember you, Les. Hats off to you, buddy. And I guess that pretty much brings this particular episode of the Double K Super Show to an exciting and scintillating finish. As always. And with that, I'm Chris Karam. I'm Mark Konzorowski. And we will see you next time on the Double K Super Show. Thank you for listening to the Double K Super Show. If you like what you heard, please rate a review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Podomatic, and share us on social media. Copyright 2021, the Double K Super Show.